You take your Bibles and turn once again to Luke chapter 12. I, I wonder if we understand each Sunday as we come and we gather. I wonder if we have the, the focus. I wonder if we have the, the flexibility mentally um, to move from one song or one passage to another in our worship service. Sometimes the changes are very dramatic. Um, and uh, in the choir, singing a song about, you know, calling Jesus Messiah, and it has just the, the tone and the tenor of the music, it has a very kingly feel to the, to the song. And, you know, the Psalms uh, have a very kingly feel in their approach uh, towards this subject. But then we transition right away into a song like the one that we've sung, where we're talking about, you know, you know, I'm vile, and I'm a sinner, and I need to wash my sins away, and Jesus has done this for me. And both perspectives are, 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 are right and good, but I wonder if we have the focus and the, the mental flexibility when we come here and worship, or if when we come and worship, if sometimes we can just drone on with the words in front of us, or um, be kind of led emotionally wherever our thoughts and feelings take us. I wonder if we bring a sense of purpose and focus to our worship that really is required if the stuff that we're singing about is truly going to come from the heart instead of just, you know, the masses, the voices. This is not, a, I mean, this is not a cult. Um, we're not droning on here for no reason. We're not chanting whatever the leader stands up to chant. Um, we're making an offering here to God. We are, we are worshiping a living being. And, um, and I, it's hard. I mean, it's hard. My wife's not here this morning. My son's not here this morning. Um, I have to travel and get on a plane this afternoon. These are my struggles that I bring. And I, I'm sure you have a huge number of distractions in your own life as well. Not that they're bad. They're important and they're things that require attention, our focus, but to prepare yourself to open the Word of God by bringing worship and praise to God, I tell you, it really does require a focus mentally in what you're doing or else it just becomes no different than Middle Eastern chants. Um, I have been thinking uh, this week, approaching this passage, but also just approaching life in general, um, I've been thinking about the danger of relegating Jesus in our minds to simply the Lamb of God, which is amazing, to be sure, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, an acceptable sacrifice to God to cover our sins. Um, but that's only half of the, the coin, if you will. That's only part of the picture. That's the preliminary part of the story. That's not, that's not the totality of who Jesus is. Um, we don't serve, you know, a weak and dying and dead Jesus. 
part of the amazement of looking at a dying Messiah is the sacrifice of the most powerful being in the world embracing death for a purpose. But if you make this all about my guilty conscience, then you've missed, you've missed the boat. Um, Jesus did not die on the cross to make you feel better. Um, uh, so I want to begin this morning by reading a passage from Revelation. I'm going to, you can, yeah, turn and read with me if you'd like. You can stay in Luke 12. I'll be pivoting right to Luke 12, but this is Revelation 19, verse 11. I read this a couple weeks ago in the service. I'll read it again now. Revelation 19.11, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And just the picture here is uh, fearful and awesome in the right sense of the word. Awe-inspiring. This is a man on his horse going to war at the head of an army his soldiers are not clothed for battle because they will not fight. He has many crowns, meaning he claims kingship of all kings. There is no crown that is outside of his realm or authority. He is not merely king of England or king of France or king of country or king of continent or king of region. He possesses all crowns. His eyes are like a flame of fire. They are burning. And he comes to make war. He comes to execute the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He himself will tread the winepress. And that's a gory image. When it talks about his robe being dipped in blood, it's the idea of someone having such victory over his enemies, crushing them beneath his feet, that the blood splatters his robe as if he were dancing in a vat of grapes pressed for the wine. And on his robe and on his thigh, exposed as he rides this horse, is a name emblazoned, tattooed, marked, there invisible, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. There is no usurper, that would stand before him. There is no ruler or leader to face him down. 
This is a frightening picture. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is terrifying stuff. The great God, referenced by the angel, is the God who has defeated the gods of pagan people. Search far and wide. See if anyone still bows to Zeus. See the great masses of Apollo. See who worships these gods. Dagon of the Philistines. Ra of Egypt. Go and find them. The great God has defeated them all. And he will be challenged in this final period of tribulation by a new prophet and a new Messiah, a new God. And they will make war against the great God, against his people, and he will come to their rescue and he will utterly destroy them all. When we talk about our sins being washed away. Understand, that is God dealing with your sin so that you do not find yourself named among the guilty, named among the transgressors, named among the enemies. Jesus dying on the cross for you is His salvation so that He does not execute you. Those are the only two situations, execution or salvation. That's it. Judgment or eternity. Think about this. This is not some weak God that we serve. This is not some weak, meek Messiah who laid himself down with no intention of victory. And no intention of judgment. No coming of wrath or fierceness. Jesus is alive in the flesh today. And he is waiting. He is waiting. You can hear the words of Peter. Do not think that God is... Slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But God is long-suffering, desiring that none should perish, 
and that all should come to repentance, for the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The sun and the stars will go black. Think about the words. We wait for a resurrection body. Jesus has a resurrection body. He, he waits only for us. He waits only for the command. This is a serious thing. Um, and in Luke 12, we pick up the tone and tenor of that serious thing. Um, begin reading with me in verse 35. Let me read the text and then we'll backtrack. We'll read all the way through 48. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. This is Jesus speaking. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. So that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to us or to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And that's the end of the text as far as we'll take it today. We could go on. Verse 49, with the disturbing words, I came to send fire on the earth. But we'll pause here in verse 48. Um, meek, dying, weak, sensitive, easily conquered, easily defeated men don't talk like this. This is how kings talk. This is how lords talk. Lords know a relationship of master and servant. That's all they know. Master and servant. Lords know how servants 
are expected to behave when they are away. And lords know the judgment that will come if they return and find that the servants have not been faithful. This is how kings talk. And so it's a bit unfamiliar to us. We don't have kings. We don't have lords. And in our form of government, for all its strengths and weaknesses, we often don't see ourselves in any sort of authoritarian hierarchy whatsoever. And so for us, this is foreign. It's not foreign to Jesus. He begins with two examples, and their examples, he shifts from the first example to the second example so quickly that you almost miss it, but Peter didn't miss it. If you look back at verse 35, this is the first example, and it changes at verse 39. But it's an immediate change. There's no like pause, let's talk about that for a second. It's immediately verses 35 through 38, example 1, 39 through 40, example 2. But they're two different examples. And this confuses Peter and causes him to ask a question. The first example, verse 35, let your waist be girded, let your lamps be burning, you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. That's the first example. Men waiting for their master. And it says when he will return from the wedding that he'll come and he'll knock and they may open immediately. In other words, the idea is a master's gone away, he's gone for a period of time, a wedding was not, you know, a one day out, one day back thing, it was a feast, it was a ceremony, the, the, the date of the return was uncertain, but when the master returned, there was an expectation that he would find his men doing what he had told his men to do with his house, and that is they would be ready for him. They would be looking for him. The men who were on the first watch would be on the first watch. The men who were on the second watch would be on the second watch. The men who were on the third watch would be on the third watch. And when he was approaching, they would see him and make things ready. They would open to him, and he would find the estate in the way that he intended it to be. That's how a master deals with servants. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. In other words, when the faithful master returns and finds faithful servants doing exactly as they were commissioned to do with things that did not belong to them, when he finds them waiting and watching and prepared, when he finds them honorable, when he finds them with integrity, when he finds them honest, when he finds them faithful rather than betraying, when he finds them loyal rather than disloyal, that master will make a feast for them. He himself will put on the servant's clothes and he will treat them as if they were his masters. He'll treat them as if he was their servant. He will make a great reward for them because of their loyalty, because of their honesty, because of their integrity, because of their faithfulness. These are good men. These are faithful men. Verse 38, And if he should come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. They never abandon post. Now, the shift happens immediately. Verse 39, completely different parable. But know this, <laughs> You see the change in tone right away. First, the good and faithful servants. But know this. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, now we're talking about a different scenario. 
Now it's a master who owns a house and has possession, and there's a thief coming to rob him. Different metaphor. We're off the other one. Don't be confused by it. That one's set aside. This is a new story. If there's a man with the house and he knows what hour the thief is coming to rob him, then he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Simple enough. This is like the whole premise of the movie Home Alone. <laughs> you want to come into my home and you want to take my possessions? You want to overtake me in my sleep, in my bed? You want to make off with what I have built and with what I've acquired? You want to rob me? If the master knows when that man will do that thing, he will be ready. You will not rob me. You will not take from me. The master will prepare himself. This is a very, you know, forgive me for, you know, any hint of sexism behind it, but this is a very manly idea. I have worked, I have labored, I have built, I have acquired. This is a lifetime of whatever my life amounts to is here in my home, and you're going to walk in and take it from me? I don't think so. If the master of the house had known when the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And now both stories are linked because the returning person here is Jesus. And to the first group, the faithful servants, he is the man who will come and reward them and bless them. He is the good master and the good Lord. But to the one who is unaware and who is not a servant and who is unprepared, he will come like a thief and take everything from him. He will leave him with nothing. He will not announce his arrival with any sort of preparatory you know, time. There won't be a special eminary saying in seven days, in three months, in nine weeks, in two years. He will show up. He will catch the unexpected off guard. He will take what they claimed as their own for himself and they will be destroyed. Now, Peter asks a very fair question in verse 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to us or to all? I think that's the most reasonable question Peter could possibly ask. Who are you warning? Lord, are you warning us? And this is Jesus' chance to let Peter and the disciples entirely off the hook. And to tell them, no, you guys are in the first group. No, you guys, you guys 
have been you know, good, faithful guys. You've traveled around with me, the 12 of you. We've gone place to place. I've sent you out. You, you have preached the message I have given you. You have been faithful. You have been loyal. This is not for you guys. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. I can only assume that's what Peter would like him to do. That's what all of us would like to happen, right? You read about the return of King Jesus and the wrath that accompanies him, and you want to hear, oh, that's not for you. Don't worry about that. <laughs> that's not for you. Verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward? He doesn't say it's not for you. He asks Peter a question. You tell me who the faithful and wise steward is. Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give portion of food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Here's your answer, Peter. You want to know what group you're in, and I'll tell you. The faithful and wise steward, whom is set over God's, over the master's possessions, and who is found, verse 43 says, so doing when the master comes, that's the guys in the first group. In other words, the steward who is found doing the work of a steward when the master comes is in the first group. And Peter is looking for categories now. He's looking for, Peter, you are in this category, and other people are in this warning category, but that's not what Jesus says. He goes right back to the same parable. I'll tell you who is in the first category. The people in the first category are the people who live and act as I described in the first category. Those who are stewards, those who are entrusted, and those who are faithful. Those who when the master returned were found doing what they were supposed to be doing. But, verse 45, and now there's a little debate here about what follows, but to me it's very clear, and I'll explain why. There are basically three categories of people that follow in the but. Because not everybody's going to be found faithfully doing. But, if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. You know, in... Older times, one of the most dangerous things that a king, a tribal leader, a commander, a chief, one of the most dangerous things they could do was to take a group of their fighting men, their warriors, and go out to conquer or to defend in a foreign front. Because when they leave... If they tarry, if they are gone for an extended period of time, there will be servants back home who imagine they're not going to return. 
and who imagined that the delay is license for new leadership, new authority, new ideas. No king would be stupid enough to leave and not leave trustworthy people at home, lest when he returns, there is no home for him. Jesus says, but, and then he talks about people just like that. If that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying and is coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, he sets himself up as Lord. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour which he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now that, that's an interesting phrase there, isn't it? Because we blend a very practical parable of a master who is returning to a home and a guy who is mistreating servants and things like that. But when the guy, we get the judgment, he'll be cut in two, and then it says, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. So it's as if we're blending the parable of a real-life scenario that Jesus is imagining to illustrate a point with the spiritual that Jesus is speaking to, being unbelievers. In other words, there is judgment coming for the unbelievers. That's always on the table. This is not about what happens to the unbelievers. <laughs> Everybody knows what happens to the unbelievers. To the people who feel no guilt or shame over their sin. To the people who mock, belittle, who are not moved at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To the people who will not bend the knee and, as Psalm 2 counsels, kiss the son lest they perish in his wake. There are those who stand up not believing, not repenting, not accepting, despite mountains of evidence to the contrary. Our God has defeated all other gods. The name of Jesus is known across the world. And there are those who will not believe and there is no question about what will happen to them. And now we get this blended analysis that if the master returns and finds servants who have rejected the premise of his return and have made the authority their own and usurped his role in his house, they will be cut in two and numbered with the unbelievers. Then I think this is a second class in verse 47, which says, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Now the first guy usurps his master's authority in his master's absence. That guy's cut in two. This guy simply neglects everything that was given to him to manage. Though he knew better, verse 47, he knew his master's will. He's beaten with many stripes. And then a third category in verse 48, but he who did not know, 
yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. In other words, there will be those who had no knowledge who are punished, but the punishment will be lesser. Now, the doctrinal debate around the details, the eschatological, the future details of what Jesus is describing here has raged for a long time. And people come down on all different sides of the argument. Perhaps all three of these categories are unbelievers. Perhaps the first or the second are found to be unbelievers and the third is not. I'm going to tell you, they'll talk circles around this, but I think they're missing, I think they're missing the point trying to to line every one of these metaphors that Jesus is describing here. Because when Jesus returns, people are... I don't think this is saying people are going to be tied to a post in the city square and whipped, and some people are going to be sawn in half, and some people are going to be whipped just lightly. I don't... I think the metaphor... The parable that Jesus is using is meant to describe where he concludes. And where he concludes is the second part of verse 48. It says this, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask more. Um, so let me try to summarize what I think this means. Peter asks Jesus, does this warning apply to us, to the disciples? And Jesus' answer seems to me to say to Peter, absolutely it does. Because Peter and the disciples were in one group of those who knew what was required. Who had been given Privilege and responsibility. And then there were others who had been exposed to the gospel, who knew a little less, and to varying degrees, more or less from then on forward. And then there's this first category of those who seem to have great knowledge and just go into utter apostasy, just completely abandon the knowledge. And the principle that Jesus is concluding with is, listen, it abso- the warning applies to you because... To whom much is given, much is required. And if you're going to be entrusted with the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God, you are going to be held to account for what you do with that truth. And the metaphor is this, you know, beating, more stripes, less stripes, etc. But the metaphor leads to a truth that you and I have to come face to face with. If Jesus is our master, when he returns, he will hold us to account. If we are found faithful, he has prepared a place for us. He will reward us. He will enrich us. He will give us an inheritance in his kingdom. And if we are found unfaithful, parable of the talents, That's a hard truth to face. This is James. Faith without works is dead. This is John's warning. (laughs) If we have saving faith in our lives, if we have the Spirit of God spiritually 
fruit will grow from that. Works will come. Um, John, I think it was you that read Ephesians 2. What was it last week? Maybe. Ephesians 2 is about, hey, you're saved by grace through faith. And it has nothing to do with you. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And then the pivot, for we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Separate faith and works. You can't. If your faith is real, the works will follow. If you are honest, if you are a man or a woman of honor, if you are a faithful servant, then when the master returns, he will find the honorable, faithful servant doing the things that demonstrate their faithfulness. And Peter says, I want to be found in the honorable and faithful group. I want to, I want to be met with a happy and rewarding master. And Jesus says, blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. There's a hint of what my dad would talk to me about when I was a kid. You know, uh, to a certain extent, you know, you are what you are. And you can say, I'm a man of integrity. And if you don't keep your word, and if you're not faithful, and if you're not trustworthy, you are what you are. Aspiring to be something is not the same as being something. If you are a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, you will be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. You will be found faithful at His return. And you think about what this means for the disciples who are living this and who are hearing this. And you're going to watch Peter go through a denial of Jesus three times and then even on the other side of the resurrection of Christ be concerned with returning to fishing as opposed to continuing on with what is clearly a stewardship that he'd been given. And you're going to watch Judas, who's in this group with Peter asking the question. Judas is in the group where Peter says, Lord, do you speak this to us? Well, yeah, he speaks it to them. And it would have been good for Judas to hear it. It would have been good for Peter to hear it. It was good for James, martyred within a few years, to hear it. And it's good for us to hear it. God is compassionate and has demonstrated His love for us in Christ. But do not mistake the compassion and the demonstration of the love of God for a wishy-washy God who will not hold anyone to account. That is not who you serve. You ought to deal with sin. Why? To demonstrate that you are a faithful servant. Because you don't want to be found unfaithful when He returns. You ought to deal with your wants and your desires. Why? To demonstrate that you're a faithful servant. What is a faithful servant? 
This parable, and I'll end with this, this parable is using what I imagine was already kind of a well-known saying because it ends with this phrase. Everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And we need to put parameters around this because this is a phrase that the world uses freely in all different kinds of ways. It's just a general principle. And it's true. It should be true. If you're given responsibility, that comes with requirements. If you're given an honorable, honorable position, that comes with requirements. It should be true. If you're given power, there's some requirements for that power. But this is saying something more. First of all, when it says, everyone to whom much is given, in verse 48, you see what he means by what's given. Do you see it in verse 48? It's knowledge. It's knowledge. He's talking about what the servants know. So you could look at that, everyone to whom much is given, and say, well, you know, I haven't been given a lot of money or I don't have great possession, I don't have a lot of power on the earth. It's not talking about any of that stuff. It's talking about your knowledge of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's talking about your knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. If you have been given the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords who died on the cross to save you and who is returning to call this world into judgment, that's powerful. It should be life-changing. It should be transformative. So knowledge is what's given. Everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And we know in this context what it is that's required. It's stewardship, faithfulness, doing what a servant should be doing. That's what's required. Knowledge of your position as a servant to a master is what's given, what's required, is faithfulness as a servant to a master. And then the final part of this is required by whom? Required by whom? Verse 40. It's the Son of Man who is returning. Um, I know Luke 12 is not an easy text, and I know that, you know, perhaps it feels like, you know, we've hammered home on some of these things, but... You know, I'm not the one who requires any of this from you. The Son of Man is the one returning and will call you into account. And He'll either find you doing what you should be doing as a steward or not. Um, I've heard this phrase ushered around in the world, you know, to whom much is given, much required. Much, to whom much is given, much is required. But they never get around to who's requiring it of them. Or the consequence of not doing it. To them, it's, let's make the world a better place. Let's do loving and benevolent things, and blah, 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 blah. But you got to understand, if it's required, someone is requiring it. That person is Jesus. What does he require? Well, let's. I want to turn and we'll end with one verse in Matthew 16. Just one verse, and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Matthew 16, verse 24. What does stewardship look like? We've said stewardship is required. What does stewardship look like? What's required? Matthew 16, 24 tells us what's required. 
There are three parts to Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That's part one. It's true. If you've ever been a steward, a servant of a master, it requires self-denial. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Self-denial. When you read that part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, understand that is a spiritual thing. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not talking about the self-control that the world knows, a man who can simply rule his, his wants and desires. That's not what it's talking about. Self-control means the ability to self-sacrifice for Jesus Christ. The ability to deny oneself to be of spiritual use to the Lord. That's not a, that's not a earthly discipline. He must deny himself, self-denial. He must take up his cross, self-sacrifice. Sacrifice. There is, it's not just about denying your own wants and ambitions. There is a cost. A constant, daily, ongoing cost that you must pay. And if you don't pay it, you're not following. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, and follow me. A pursuit of Jesus' glory, of Jesus' will, of Jesus' ambition, not your own. There is self-denial, self-sacrifice, and a pursuit of Jesus and His will. This is what a faithful steward does. This is how a faithful steward lives. This is how you can be honorable and have integrity in your walk with the Lord. You can be faithful. This is how you can know which group you're in, that when the Lord Jesus returns, He finds you so doing. Self-denial, self-sacrifice in pursuit of of Jesus' will, of your Master's will. Let's pray, and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Father, our sin has been covered with blood. Not with flowers, not with candles, not with sweet-sounding lullabies or big speeches, not with tears, but blood. So that we may not be found as the victims of your righteousness executed at the return of your son Jesus, blood has been shed. You have sacrificed for us someone worthy, someone righteous. 
you have made this sacrifice for those who are unworthy, for those who are unrighteous. The honorable has died for the dishonored. The righteous has died for the wicked. And this is how you have redeemed the wicked from their own destruction. This is how you have spared us from your judgment. That a man's life, the man, the man Jesus, the man's life was offered. That blood was shed. Father, I wait for his return. Establish him. Make him to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Put the world under your foot. Take the crowns off every other head. Execute judgment and righteousness. Bring your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.